When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As of right now, we are at war. How desperate. You call on such lost creatures to defend you. How desperate am I? You threaten my world with war. You steal a force you can't hope to control. You talk about peace and you kill because it's fun. You have made me very desperate. You might not be glad that you did it. There was an idea to bring together a group of remarkable people they can become something more like the battles that we never could. Welcome to Fury's Finest, a podcast and resource devoted to discussion of Marvel Crisis Protocol. My name is Jesse Aiken, and I am joined again by my co-host and good friend, Chris Bruffett. Chris, we took a week off because we had a lot of things going on, so how are you doing? <laughs> I'm all right. It's been a long, long week, my friend. But uh, right. everything's settling down now, and we will be back on schedule. So sorry about that. No, completely necessary. So, Chris, long story short, you moved again. And, of course, we had to take a week off, and I think it's really important because our last two episodes were really robust, too, and quite a production. We had our Gen Con episode and our interview series with Zach Bunn. So hopefully those satiated you listeners for some time. And what's funny is Chris and I even had this episode written out before the move and everything, but we had to finish up Rockin' and Groot and post it. And now we're back on schedule. And today we're back in the Guardians again. So we hope you guys enjoyed Rockin' and Groot and that the week off wasn't, you know, that big of a deal. We're pretty good about posting on time, Chris. You know, these episodes take a lot of time to plan, write, record, edit, post, all that good stuff, because we would always rather you guys get a finished product per se, rather than a half done episode with no production or something like that, which we could have potentially done during your move week, but we decide against it. And now you guys have Rocket and Groot. And today we're on Gamora and Nebula. And Chris is pretty much moved, right, Chris? Yeah, everything's here. My dogs are finally with me again. All my MCP stuff is with me again. I can finally start working on a hobbying room. So yeah, everything's back on track and and getting ready to dive back in all the way and, and add more content here to the Fury's Finest stream. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was a big step, not only for you, Chris, but for Fury's Finest, because everyone on the show that listens knows that you had a big move, you know, months ago, but then of course COVID hit. And then on top of that, you still had things here in Tulsa, some at my house, some at your old house, things like that. I'm happy that you have all your stuff now, not only just your MCP stuff, but of course your personal things and your most important things, your dogs. Oh, I missed them very much, but I got one asleep right next to me as we record this. That's wonderful. You've got everything with you now, which is great. So like, I feel like the move is official all the way. You know, you're not in that transition period anymore, right? 
100% in. That's great. It only means good things for Fury's Finest. And so much so, Chris and I, before your final move happened, we got some TTS in like we talked about in our Rocket and Groot episode. And man, it's fun to play TTS. And now you've got all your stuff. So you can hobby. I mean, you can be is in as you can now with your free time, though it's still limited right now. It'll get better. And that's what's so fun about where we are right now with MCP. There's so many things coming out. There's so many things to talk about. There's so many things to potentially stream. And there's so many things to paint and hobby, Chris. It's kind of out of control. Well, I'm very behind as it is. Come November, it's going to be a lot worse. (laughs) That's right. So we just talked about in our Rocket and Grid episode how Miles, Gwen, and Goblin had just come out. So they just came out. But we're about to get Strange and Wong. The schedule now has been fully confirmed basically for the rest of the year, which is pretty exceptional. So right after Strange and Wong, we're going to have Ant-Man and Wasp and Ghost Rider. And this is a very exciting release window, Chris, because though I feel like the community at large and even us here on the show, a little bit less excited about Ant-Man and Wasp from a thematic standpoint, but maybe from a gameplay standpoint, very excited. Ghost Rider, I am a a 10 out of 10 gameplay-wise and a 10 out of 10 hype and lore thematic-wise. So I can't wait for this as well. And I still don't have even Strange in my hands. Having Strange and then Wong, of course, which is game-changing for this game. And then we've had that followed by Ant-Man, Wasp, and Ghost Rider. That's pretty crazy. Super excited to get some games in both with and against strange. The potential for that character just sounds so crazy, and I'm ready to see how it's going to actually translate on the board. The more I think about Ant-Man and Wasp, the more I think they're going to kind of be crazy objective runners. They are. And that might be pretty wild. That might really shore up that kind of objective runner playstyle. Maybe they'll be low enough cost that you can run heavy hitters with two low cost objective runners. I don't know, man, but it's going to be pretty cool. And then Ghost Rider, of course, his card has leaked. We have seen it. Goodness. It is awesome. And I've seen Atomic Mass painting some of these models. The Blue Flame, if you've seen that model, is, is particularly incredible. Very, very excited. I have to get better at painting before I paint that model, though. You've got time. You've got a lot of releases before that you're working on. And man, Chris, I think he's everything that you and I wanted. And the nice curveball, the most exceptional piece for me was being revealed that he was Threat 5. So we only have Thor, Modok, and Strange, who's not even in our hands as of yet. He's on his way. And then we got another five. And man, is Ghost Rider a Threat 5. He fits the bill. He's got energy attacks. He's got mystic attacks. He's got insane movement. I've heard a couple people say... They're a little bit shocked. His move is not quite as extreme as they thought. I think it's pretty extreme. So he's a large base like Hulk and Modok are. You have to remember that large base. With the medium move? That's pretty big. No one in the game with a large base has had a medium move yet. And then you add on top of that, he has a superpower called Hell on Wheels, where he advances long. Essentially, if he wanted to, he could move medium, medium, long, and essentially make the whole length of the board. That is wild. I think his movement's fine. Now, you're not going to want to move him a lot because you want to attack with him, but how crazy to think of a long mover on a big base. Mm-hmm. We're going to use his superpower and move and then use your two actions to hopefully attack with these Chains of Damnation, the Flames of Hell, or, of course, the iconic Mystic Attack Penance Stare. 
And they just did such a great job with that attack. Oh, they did. The added dice, the, the power sap. Oh, so good. Making it mystic in the first place. So cool. I think they did a wonderful job. Hats off to Atomic Mass on that one. Yeah, and one of the most interesting things about him, and of course we're going to do a whole deep dive on him on the show like we always do, guys, but we're just talking about what's exciting to us right now. He has superpowers like the Wicked's Judgment. When people attack allied characters within range three of Ghost Rider, he can spend power to do the superpower, and then the enemies suffer damage if they roll crits. So it's kind of like he's buffing up people with bodyguard he's keeping those weaker people safer in a way like do you really want to attack that weaker model by ghost rider because then he's going to trigger this and you might die we just talked about in our last episode rockets booby traps and how they can sometimes sneak up on you when you're not ready this could be a similar situation and then his innate power spirit of vengeance after an attack made by an enemy character that is within range three of this character is resolved if the attack targeted another allied character instead of ghost rider ghost rider gains one power <laughs> so he's getting fed. He's got wonderful ways to spend that power too. He's going to need every bit of that power generation, but oh my gosh, I think it's going to be worth it. Yeah, he's so exciting and we're going to talk more about him in the future, but we had to talk about him now because they give us the spoilers and we just cannot wait. I'm very overwhelmed. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. It is a little overwhelming and I'm glad you're finally setting up a hobby space, putting time into that because... I'm really looking forward to you doing some of the models that I've gotten done of recent stuff. And I know you're not going to be onto this stuff quite yet, but I think you're going to learn a lot and have a lot of fun, even though it's a little overwhelming. I know you got to get that black order together because I know you're excited about it. I've got to find some stuff to build some confidence on before I'm painting Thanos. Well, worst case scenario, Chris, you put everything together and then you just do those beautiful Zenithal highlights. And really, you know, Zenithal highlights, especially with an airbrush, Let's also mention that you got an airbrush and you're going to start learning that, which is yep. incredible. Something I've never done. Something I really want to learn as well. And just those Zenithal highlights, like Serastro has a great guide on them. They really make models just look better than plastic on the table. I mean, you're adding natural light and shadows to the base coat before you start painting. That's a good start. It's a good start. I'm pretty excited to get into that. I really am. It's not hard with the airbrush at all. It takes no time. Awesome. I'll keep everybody posted on my progress for sure. We would love to hear it. I know I would. I know the listeners would well. So there's so much to talk about. We could go more into Ghost Rider and all this stuff, but we got to get back to the Guardians. There's a lot to talk about today, Chris, because we're doing another double episode. We did Rock and Groot last time. It was quite an episode. Turns out today is going to be very similar. It's going to be a wild ride. Well, I think we should just get into it. So let's get going. Fury's Finest is sponsored by Discount Games Inc. Go to www.discountgamesinc.com for all your Marvel Crisis Protocol and miniature gaming needs. Our patrons support Fury's Finest at patreon.com slash Fury's Finest. If you enjoyed this show, consider supporting with a monthly contribution. We would love to thank all of our patrons for their committed support. We want to send a huge thank you out this week to Lang J. Lang, thank you so much for being a patron of the podcast. And a huge thank you to our producer, Matthew R. Thank you, Matthew, for being a producer. Guys, the producer slots are still open. As we mentioned last episode and the episodes prior, these people are very serious. Like They are putting their hard-earned money into this show to help us pay our hosting fees, our equipment fees, and help pay for our future models to do these deep dives and reviews and discussions on the show of these wonderful characters in MCP. So 
we can't think of them enough. But if all you can contribute is a couple dollars a month, check out our low tiers because you get part of this wonderful Discord and you automatically get a Discord link. So thank you to our wonderful, wonderful patrons. Chris, let's get into this lore. So before we start lore today, something a little different, something we knew would come up on the show eventually, but had not come up yet, which is sort of a disclaimer. So normally our show is, of course, always non-explicit. And I wouldn't say today's going to be explicit in the way of language, but some of the discussions will be a little more mature because we knew this was coming, Chris. Some of the elements of Marvel are more intense, more mature. Yep. And this is our first foray into it. It's incredible we've gone this far, and it actually is a testament to Marvel because most of Marvel is this kind of happy, positive, stay away from the darkness sort of thing. But at the same time, Marvel has a lot of mature and adult themes that pop up from time to time with certain characters. And today is our first instance of that and probably will not be our last. So just a quick warning here. And if you can explain any of that further, Chris. Yeah, today, Gamora and Nebula both have some pretty adult themes in their stories. We don't want to shy away from it and we don't want to not talk about it, but we did want to warn you guys. We know some of you guys have families and kids that listen sometimes. Just wanted to give a a warning before we got too into this so that uh, you weren't surprised by anything. If you need to skip our lore for now, uh, you can skip ahead to strategy and come back to it later. But just worth mentioning, we always want our show to be clean, all ages, all that good stuff. But sometimes with the content of the stories and the lore, though our language can be clean, some of the content is definitely for more mature audiences. And that's testament to some of these storylines. And I think, Chris, this is something we're going to get more into in the future quite a bit with some of the characters we know that are coming up. This is just a discussion we had to have up front. And of course, in the future, we will always let you know if there's a particular character or storyline that's a little bit more mature. But just a little disclaimer before we get into it today. And once again today, guys, we are doing two characters. So the question I'm going to ask, Chris, is who are Gamora and Nebula? And let's start with Gamora. Well, Jesse, I'm glad you asked. Gamora is the adopted daughter of Thanos and the last of her species. Her powers include superhuman strength and agility and an accelerated healing factor. She also is an elite combatant being able to beat most of the opponents in the galaxy. She's a member of the group known as the Infinity Watch. She played a role in the 2007 crossover comic book event Annihilation Conquest, which I always recommend y'all read. Every time. And became a member of the titular team in its spinoff comic, Guardians of the Galaxy, of course. Also a member of the MCU Guardians of the Galaxy, which is the best Marvel movie. That's right. Chris and I keep saying it. We're just going to drool it in. Don't add us. Don't. Now let's talk about Nebula. Nebula is a brutal space pirate and mercenary. She is an athletic woman and an excellent armed and unarmed combatant. She possesses a gifted intellect and is a brilliant battle strategist. So Chris, before we get into their first appearance in comics, I think it's worth mentioning, since this is only our second episode of the entire show of doing a double character episode. I think it's going to be obvious why we chose these two as double, but the important part today is we chose Rocket and Groot last week because they're the duo that are never separated. Gamora and Nebula, they're always tied together, especially so much in the MCU. And of course, they're adopted sisters. And some of this is different in some of the lore, but we thought it was appropriate, especially for MCP, because the way they lean into MCP, especially on the Nebula side of things, 
is very MCU oriented. These sort of absolutely adopted daughters of Thanos and all the things they endure and the people they become from that childhood. So we thought it was appropriate episode to do them together. And of course, appropriate to do them together in MCP. So before we get into it, I just wanted to mention that. Unfortunately, their stories do not intertwine nearly as much as Rocket and Groot. So we are nope. going to have to go through their histories separately, but we will try to hustle through it. I promise. So the next thing we're going to talk about is their first appearance in comics. Gamora was created by Jim Starlin, and her first appearance was in Strange Tales number 80, dated 1975. Nebula, her sister, was created by writer Roger Stern and artist John Bushima, and first appeared in The Avengers number 57 in July 1985. So 10 years apart there. Let's get into Gamora. Gamora is the last of her species, the Zen Huberis, who were exterminated by the Badoon in the original timeline. Her species was exterminated by the Universal Church of Truth. Thanos then found her as a child and decided to use her as a weapon. Gamora was raised and trained by Thanos to assassinate the Magus, who is the evil future version of Adam Warlock. Thanos shared her little kindness during her childhood. But Gamora was very loyal to the man who promised her the opportunity to avenge the death of her own family. Gamora became very proficient in martial arts, earning herself the nickname, the deadliest woman in the whole galaxy. When she was a teenager, Thanos took her on a trip to Tartunala, number seven, where Gamora would disobey Thanos' orders. At this point, Gamora was greatly outnumbered, and despite her skills in combat, she was defeated, then raped by the assailants. Thanos found her half-dead, and in turn, the Mad Titan murdered all of her assailants, restored Gamora to health, then cybernetically enhancing her to superhuman levels. As an adult, Gamora was sent as an assassin against the Universal Church of Truth, quickly becoming feared by its agents, the Black Knights. She exacted revenge for the genocide of her race by killing every member of the church involved before the event actually occurred. Gamora met and teamed up with Adam Warlock, who wanted to stop his future evil self. She even managed to get close to the Magus, but failed her assassination in the last second. Together with Warlock, Pip the Troll, and Thanos, Gamora fought to escape the Black Knights of the Universal Church of Truth and Magus's Death Squad. She was then assigned by Thanos to protect Adam Warlock, but she became suspicious of Thanos' plans and was then attacked by Drax the Destroyer. Eventually, the Magus was defeated, but Thanos revealed himself as an even greater threat. Gamora aided Captain Marvel, Drax, and the Avengers against Thanos. Gamora and Pip tried to prevent Thanos from destroying half of all life in the universe. Gamora then attempted to slay Thanos, but he mortally wounded her and destroyed Pip's mind. Adam Warlock found them, and Gamora warned Adam of Thanos' plans, and Adam absorbed their souls into his soul gem. When Adam Warlock dies as well, his spirit was reunited with that of his friends in the soul world within the soul gem. So you'll see here, like in the MCU that we're all yes. familiar with, she has a, a very strange connection to the soul gem, because in both timelines, in the comic timeline and the MCU timeline, she's been in the soul gem or sacrificed to the soul gem very cool how they how they brought this into the mcu by using different methods to tell right. the same story i think it's very cool something we see a lot in the mcu which is really interesting inside the soul gem was soul world 
a place where Gamora, Pip, and eventually Adam Warlock himself lived in peace. Other beings who had been absorbed by the Soul Gem, such as Kraytor and Autolycus, also lived in peace with former enemies. Gamora met the Silver Surfer when he traveled to Soul World and also battled Drax the Destroyer. When Thanos managed to obtain all the Infinity Gems, forming the Infinity Gauntlet, Adam Warlock decided that he must be stopped. Warlock led Gamora and Pip the Troll out of Soul World into the real world. Their souls took over the bodies of three humans who had recently died in a car crash. Gamora thus returned to the corporeal world by taking possession of the body of Bambi Long, whose body then began transforming into a duplicate of Gamora's original body. However, Gamora was soon erased from existence by Thanos when he erased half of the population in the universe. When Nebula claimed the gauntlet for Thanos, Gamora returned to existence. Warlock now had the Infinity Gauntlet, giving him near omnipotence. Gamora and Pip persuaded Doctor Strange to help them find and stop Adam Warlock, who was going mad with power. The Living Tribunal intervened, and Warlock divided the Infinity Gems among several Guardians, known as the Infinity Watch. Gamora received the Time Gem, but was incapable of consciously using it, though it did give her sporadic precognitive dreams and visions. Gamora had become romantically interested in Adam, but Warlock did not respond as well to her. In an argument over the Infinity Watch, member Maxim, Gamora left the Infinity Watch and the Time Gem behind. She returned to work as a mercenary until Adam Warlock approached her again. They continued to travel together and eventually, Adam reciprocated her love. Adam and Gamora remained in a pocket dimension to raise the cosmic being known as Atliza. Man, a lot of stones, Chris. A lot of stones. A lot of stone discussion. And it seems important that Gamora is always tied to the stones and Thanos for obvious reasons, but it's just kind of more apparent laid out this way. I know we got lots to go. Just a thought I quickly had because it's like, man, time stone too. It's pretty cool, man. And of course, we got the best stuff coming up, Annihilation. Yeah, exactly. So this is going to bring us up to the events of Annihilation. Gamora later reappears in the pages of Ronan having left the company of Adam Warlock and settled on the world of Godthab Omega as leader of a group of female warriors called the Graces, where her mind has been altered by Glorian. She is intent on reestablishing her reputation as the deadliest woman in the universe and now wields a powerful blade known as Godslayer. At one point, she is seen reclining on a throne made of corpses. She joins the United Front, using her skills to launch quick counterattacks against the Annihilation Wave. She then engages in a sexual relationship with the United Front's leader, Nova. During the Phalanx's invasion of the Kree homeworld following the Annihilation War, Gamora is assimilated as a select of the hive mind. They dispatch her to apprehend Nova after he flees the planet. She is later freed by Nova and the Technarch Tyro, but left in severe distress longing again for the sense of companionship brought by the phalanx and continuing to adopt her phalanx mannerisms. She then joins the new Guardians of the Galaxy. Gamora was then taken prisoner by Magus when he faked the death of himself and several other Guardians. She was rescued by Star-Lord and played a minor role in the war with the Cancerverse. She later appears on Earth to aid the Avengers against Thanos. During the original Sin storyline, Gamora was seen with Moon Knight and the Winter Soldier's group when they do their investigation on who murdered Utu, Utu the Watcher. Later, 
Gamora was confronted in her dreams by an elderly version of herself who turned out to be a part of her which had remained trapped in the Soul Stone after she left its internal paradise. This gave Gamora a motivation to recover the Soul Stone at whatever cost. When the Guardians of the Galaxy find the Power Stone, Gamora pleads with Star-Lord to let her use the stone so she could get the Soul Stone and recover this piece of her soul trapped within it. Quill refuses, and Gamora leaves him with a parting kiss. So, this is going to take us up to the Infinity Wars, which, unfortunately, because of a double episode, we're not going to be able to cover that, but maybe in the future we can do a deep dive on the Infinity Wars. So yeah, Chris, of course, with Annihilation, Gamora plays an important part, like you mentioned. Us pushing Infinity War to a later time is very important because we have something very special planned with our Thanos episodes. We'll tease that now, and I think it's more important to get into that then, so it's not just kind of telling you guys the story twice. And I think we've just got to get into Nebula because this is a double episode today of the two sisters, and Nebula is really important. I think we need to get right into it. Well, let's jump into it. Her story is almost as full of uh, of violence and terrible things as Gamora's. The newly resurrected Thanos was offended by Nebula's claims of kinship. He reclaims his ship and almost killed her using the Infinity Gems. He transformed her into a grotesque virtual corpse still barely alive, leaving her as a maimed and seemingly mindless zombie burned and disfigured by his energy beams. When he later claimed the Infinity Gauntlet, Thanos boasted that Nebula was his greatest creation, unable to die, but not truly alive either. However, when Thanos defeated Eternity and took his place, Thanos expanded his consciousness into the universe, leaving his body comatose. Nebula managed to take the gauntlet from Thanos, using its power to restore herself to health and banish Thanos, seeking to conquer the universe herself. Thanos agreed to help a loose band of Earth heroes defeat Nebula. The group in question consisted of Adam Warlock, Doctor Strange, the Silver Surfer, Thor, the Hulk, Fire Lord, Doctor Doom, and Drax the Destroyer the only heroes that Strange had been able to locate in time and available to help him. The group confronted Nebula, and with Thanos exploiting Nebula's inexperience with wielding the gauntlet, she was tricked into undoing the events of his godhood and all the death and destruction he had wreaked with his power. The cosmic pantheon, which Thanos had earlier defeated, immediately appeared and battled her. With Nebula thus distracted, not realizing that they were keeping her occupied by attacking her all at once, thus preventing her from thinking of a less direct method of assault, the Surfer and Warlock were able to steal the gauntlet from her by exploiting Warlock's connection to the Soul Gem, disrupting the unity between the Infinity Gems and forcing Nebula to drop the gauntlet. Nebula was captured by Star Fox and returned to Titan for trial, while Adam Warlock claimed the gauntlet. Chris, this is a very strange flip of the... Infinity War fight on Titan against Thanos, where they're trying to get the gauntlet off his hands, with Strange leading that team. Very cool, right? Yeah. Of course, that's all our heroes, and no Thanos on a good guy's side. Then, of course, they're fighting Thanos, and even Nebula's with them fighting Thanos. But yeah, you're right. Something you and I say a lot, which we're going to keep saying, especially when we get to our MCU segments, but these are all separate universes, right? We have the normal Marvel universe, we have the Ultimate universe, we have the MCU universe. The list goes on and on and on. And it's really interesting to see these reoccurring battles and stuff happen with different key players. 
This is case in point, right? Kind of different themes in the same story often, which is which is usually pretty cool to, you know, kind of hear hear a story retold in a different manner or maybe adding new twists to a character. Yeah, it's just crazy that Nebula is the villain of this particular story. Yeah, it is. I'm hoping that maybe we see, uh, you know, her, maybe she gets her hands on the gauntlet in the MCU eventually. Maybe maybe we're not done with Thanos in the MCU. Nebula was later confronted by Fire Lord in a titanium prison where the murder of her abusive father was depicted in a flashback which left her in a catatonic state. Nebula was later freed from prison by her lieutenant Gaitar and converted into a cyborg by Dr. Mandibus. She attempted to free her pirate crew from the Anvil space prison but was thwarted by Silver Surfer and Jack of Hearts. She killed her crew in escaping. When next seen after escaping imprisonment, Nebula was gallivanting as a showgirl on the party planet Siligonia. When she spotted the Silver Surfer and the cosmic hero Genis Vell there, she feared being discovered. A brief fight would break out between the trio. Nebula would attempt to distract the Silver Surfer by attacking a cruise ship to facilitate her escape. But in a bid to twist the knife, she instead disguised herself as his contemporary genus in order to catch the Surfer off guard. All this did was enrage her pursuer, who had grown so fed up with her antics that he dismantled her firearm before transmuting her armor into a binding shell to incapacitate Nebula long enough to be delivered to the proper authorities. Nebula would once again escape confinement to gather an armed force geared towards attacking Thanos' home planet of Titan. Surfer would come to his old defender's compatriot, Doctor Strange, seeking aid in stopping the advancement of her recruitment drive. But the would-be pirate empress anticipated the former Herald's arrival, and she lay in wait with her first mate, Gaitar, to ambush him. After having knocked the Surfer out with a synaptic disruptor, she had her old adversary strapped to the extraterrestrial equivalent of a fusion bomb to be sent straight down into the moon's surface. But of course she underestimated Silver Surfer's companions. In her overconfidence, she left War Machine and Thunderstrike to contend with a couple of neurologically modified thugs in her army while she prepared to obliterate her former captors. Still believing she had the upper hand after Rhodes had dispatched Gaitar and infiltrated her warship, she deployed the fusion reactor the surfer had been strapped to towards the planetoid, enticing her would-be captor to choose between her incarceration or saving his accomplice and billions of lives down below. Her plan would ultimately fail as Rhodes was able to disable the warhead and free the surfer, who subsequently zipped back to Nebula's vessel and summarily dealt with her shortly afterwards. She is then seen imprisoned back on Titan with her initially assumed deceased first mate, Gaitar. And as we touched on earlier, Nebula appeared as one of Gamora's followers, the Graces, in the Annihilation storyline. After trying again to beat Ronin and losing, she would be contacted by Kindun, a living conduit to the similarly named planet which he inhabited, to bring her adopted sibling Gamora to him seeking to enact retribution for what she and her father-slash-mentor Thanos did in times long past. Nebula herself would enlist an army of Katari in pursuit of the Guardians of the Galaxy to accomplish this task, but ran afoul of the heroic Avengers when she and her forces ended up chasing them all the way to Earth. And that's where we're going to leave the story of Nebula. Of course, there's more 
in the Thanos Volume 2 storylines, and there's also a lot more in the more recent Asgardians of the Galaxy during Secret Wars. Due to time constraints, we're going to leave her story off there. That sounds good, Chris. And I think we got to move on to a really important part of our story today because the MCU is a different universe than these Marvel comics. And it cannot be more apparent compared to last week where we had Rocket and Groot doing different storylines, but being pretty much the same characters than this week when we have Gamora Nebula. And that leads us right today to their MCU appearances. So it's really helpful because these characters appear in the same movies basically together. They're always on screen at some point together and they appear in the same films. So let's start with Guardians of the Galaxy 1. We have Gamora and Nebula both introduced in this film. This is pretty important because at this point we're seeing their ties to Thanos and kind of how they break away from Thanos. But what's most interesting in this film, Chris, is in Guardians 1, Nebula is pretty much a villain the entire movie. Doesn't even break away from Thanos or even just the Black Order in general till the very, very, very end of the So we kind of get this first glimpse of the two characters, the sisters, but how kind of how Gamora's left the fold of the Black Order and, of course, gotten involved with the Guardians by the end. And then Nebula is still serving Thanos, still fighting alongside Ronan, who is fighting with Thanos in this movie. And by the end, of course, these relationships change, but it's interesting to see their beginnings in the OCU. Their second appearance, of course, is in the Galaxy 2. And of course, at this point, Gamora is fully away from Thanos. She's fully a Guardian. And Nebula has basically dedicated her life now to hunting her sister, hunting Gamora. They do have a knockdown dragout fight, which is pretty neat. They save each other's lives each during the fight. So Nebula has a little bit of a change of heart in this film. Eventually, we're together later on in the film, though Nebula still has a lot of disdain. I think they have a really great on-screen chemistry with each other in the scenes that they're in together. Whether they're fighting each other or kind of teaming up, there's always kind of an unspoken tension between them that the performers capture perfectly. I always appreciate their scenes together. So closing this out, Chris, they of course have two more films they're in, which are two of my favorite films. We have Infinity War and Endgame. What's interesting about these movies is Nebula plays as big or bigger role she's ever played in her other films. Gamora similar stance because as Chris acknowledged earlier in Infinity War, Gamora is the key to the Soul Stone. She knows where it is. She went looking for it. As we covered in our Winter Soldier episode, and they kind of bring that in the MCU, she's the only person who knows where it is. Of course, Thanos and Gamora go to Voromir where it is. They are led by the spirit of Red Skull, which is one of my favorite touches of all time. Red Skull serving his penance for life, you know? He's serving his penance for life there. I saw that movie with one of my friends who's a lot bigger Marvel fan than me, and I'm a big Marvel fan. He about fell out of his chair when that came on screen, and I did too. Such a cool nod to previous MCU history. Red Skull's kind of serving out his penance for the rest of his life as this astral spirit. His only goal was to walk people through the steps of the soul stone and of course we have i think one of the best scenes out of the two movies in this which is thanos and gamora and her saying you've never loved anything you can never get this and you just see the the look on his face because of course the thanos we have in these movies has a much deeper relationship with gamora absolutely though still abusive 
But the Thanos in this is a little less evil and a little less overbearing and controlling and all these things we've learned to know about him. But he truly does love his daughter Gamora, and they even flesh that out more in the movie. We see him find her on the planet as, of course, the Black Order is conquering it, as she's a small girl. The list goes on. Thanos sacrifices her to gain the Soul Stone. And he always says, you know, what did it cost? And he says everything. Because the only thing he ever cared about other than bringing balance to the universe was Gamora. And that leads into Nebula. He didn't care about Nebula, which is very apparent. He's very abusive to her. And Nebula is the piece, Chris, in Endgame that actually brings about the Thanos from the other timeline coming to attack our heroes. The bad Nebula, the pre-Guardians of the Galaxy Nebula, syncs up with the modern-day Nebula, hard drives, right? And she gives Thanos all the information to find our heroes and attack them. And we, of course, have a Nebula battle. And then, of course... We have a new version of Gamora. So what's crazy about this, Chris, is we lost the Gamora we knew from the three movies she was in. And the fourth movie she's in, we have Gamora, who's pre-Guardians of the Galaxy. So she hasn't even met Peter Quill until the end of Endgame. So we kind of have a whole new Gamora again. Kind of some Star Trek level uh, stuff there. Absolutely. And I'm really interested to see where they go in the third Guardians film, which would be these characters' fifth appearance for Nebula and Gamora, kind of where they go. But some standout things here, really interesting to see Nebula interacting with other characters outside of her purview and and world. Case in point, Tony Stark, her and Tony Stark are slowly running out of air and food on the Milano as they're trying to get back to Earth and don't have any hyperdrive jumps anymore. And just scenes you wouldn't expect with Nebula. And they really actually gave her a nice do in these movies. And that leads kind of to the wonderful casting of the MCU like we always talk about. But Zoe Saldana as Gamora and Karen Gillian from her Doctor Who fame as Nebula were really unexpected choices, though they make perfect sense now. And they work so well, not only as sisters, as you said, Gamora being the older sister, Nebula being the younger sister, but also being these deadly assassin women who were daughters of Thanos. They really come off as powerful in the movies. They do. Really incredible performances. I think Kieran Gillen especially nails it by capturing all of the angst that Nebula just just cannot deal with due to the mistreatment she's and the abuse she's suffered from Thanos, the only quote-unquote parental figure she's ever had in her life for real. And it's just, uh, it's, it's, it's a really awesome performance and such a sad story. And she is incredibly, incredibly Scottish. So for her to not be Scottish, <laughs> to be this cybernetic yes. character, pretty well know, done. No trace of Scotland. That's good acting. That's good acting. Zoe Saldana. What more can be said? She she plays alien women. It's like she's been cast for it many times. She's made appearances in Star Trek now and Avatar now in Guardians. Oh, she's she great. can do anything she wants in sci-fi at this point, as we know. And she just fits the roles. She fits the world she's in. She was incredible as a young Ahura. She was incredible in Avatar. Like, she's one of the standout moments of that movie. A great evolution of her career to be as iconic of a character as Gamora. And even be a more likable Gamora we know from the comics. People love Gamora from the comics. Her lore is really interesting as Chris just went through. They lean more into that in this MC, Chris. They really make her like more of this hardened assassin that's kind of softening as time goes on. She loves her sister. She really does love Peter Quill and the other members of the Guardians. And 
you know, once again, she has a really dynamic relationship with her father as well, Thanos. The pivot point of Infinity War. It's one of the main points of the plot with Thanos' character. So they couldn't have done a better job with these two actresses, these two characters, these two casting parts. And I cannot wait to see both of them again in the future. And by the end of Infinity War, they really are sisters. And that makes it even more disheartening. Absolutely. It's so heartbreaking. Yeah, I'm interested to see how Gamora and Nebula reform their relationship with the new Star Trek, as Chris said, version of Gamora, who doesn't have these memories with Peter Quill. She doesn't have these memories with the Guardians. She doesn't have these memories with Nebula. She's kind of the assassin Black Order Gamora, as we know. So I'm really interested to see what happens with that once again. But Nebula's come a long way, and I think they've got some really interesting opportunities going forward to do even more growth with her, Chris, more growth, more exploration of her character and kind of even break some of the comic molds and make her a little less one-dimensional and make her more of a hero. That could almost be a necessity for how well Gillian has played the part. She's so likable as Nebula, this despicable character. It's almost kind of like professional wrestling. When everyone really likes the bad guy, you have to make him a good guy. That's <laughs> it's how it works. It's how you make more money. And it just would kind of make sense for the MCU version of Nebula to go more in a hero direction. And it's the obvious direction they're going because she's truly heroic by the end of Endgame and, and even Guardians too. So it's interesting to see the direction they're going. You're right. I, I look forward to more of her in these films. So Chris, before we close out lore... Like always, do you have any comic book recommendations? As always, it's got to be Annihilation. It's the main thing that that they both <laughs> appear course. in, and I and I really wanted to avoid giving that as the re- recommendation, but but due to it being a sure. joint episode, it kind of has to be. But if for a Nebula specific recommendation, I would suggest As Guardians of the Galaxy okay. was was very fun. It's just a very comic book, comic book, just very fun. Okay. And then for Gamora, I think you you could do some of the more recent Guardian of Guardians of the Galaxy runs are also very yeah. fun, very good Marvel cosmic adventures. So, of course, read Annihilation first. You have to. It's the backbone of a lot of this cosmic stuff in the modern world of comics, right? Yes, and it's one of the best stories and universes inside the Marvel universe that that has happened was Dan Abnett, you oh, know, yeah. kind of controlling this whole Marvel cosmic situation and it all leading to, you know, one big final point. It was kind of, you know, similar to the MCU in that way. A bunch of titles yep. kind of happening simultaneously, not knowing that they were tying together till they tied together. Chris, I read both. I in love. It's everything that I love about comics and of course sci-fi together and this episode for another time but i really really want annihilus for mcp he literally in my mind is like ultron meets general grievous like he has the attitude and the cowardice of general grievous but he has the power level if not more of ultron dude i think that's that's an awesome awesome 
Way to put it. That was so and well done. And they're all sentient robot characters, right? So android robot characters, cybernetically enhanced, we'll call that. But yeah, I just, I gotta have him. He's he's so rich in his design. If anything, he'd be a great model on the table. I knew you would feel that way once oh, you'd yes. read, once you'd finally read Annihilation and Annihilation Conquest. It's and also I know that you want Nova super bad after reading. As that. does a lot of people. And what a great John C. Riley actually comes back in the MCU as Nova. That would be oh he's my such gosh, a comedic actor, and to see him have any sort of power level at all. And him to have his great acting prowess, but also his comedic timing and stuff. I don't know. I'm really interested to see what they do with the MCU with that. Well, we'll I see. would love to see it, but we'll we'll see where they go. They might have to bring someone else in they as Richard Ryder. So, Chris, I think it's time to move on to strategy, so let's just get going. Starting with Gamora. Her name is Gamora. Her alter ego is Gamora. She has a stamina of five, a long move, a height of two, and a, and a threat of four. Her defenses are three physical, three energy, three mystic. On her injured side, Chris, she has the same stats. Once again, five stamina, so 10 stamina total. Gamora is really interesting. Anything stand out to you? Well, it's kind of a lot of things in conjunction with each other stand out to me. Okay. The long move stands out big, as well as the size two. Right. And the strength four. And where I'm going with this is at size two, it makes it very easy for her to be dropped off. Right. And suddenly you have a long mover that's already been advanced quite a bit. That is a threat four character. Very, very awesome close combat character. And it's turn one and there she's already up in your grill. That's kind of scary. Something that stands out to me, Chris. She looks very similar to Black Panther in stats, but flipping the coin a little bit, she's a long mover, she's four threat, she's height of two, similar stamina. But flipping the coin a little bit, her defenses are not great. They're about the same defenses of a three threat character. It's true. She has no fours represented at all, which is unlike any other four in the game. She has no sort of like quirks with her defenses. They're just three across the board, which, you know, is the same as Valkyrie is the same as Star-Lord. Iron Man even has a higher defense on physical, and he's a three. So it's kind of like she has weaker defenses than some of the threes and equal defenses as most of the threes. So I think that's a crucial part to know when we look at this character on paper. And it's a really interesting design mechanic to balance her out, I think. Well, I think so too. And I, I think that's partially why she kind of excels as a flanker, but that's right. that's just me. Let's get into her attacks. So her first attack is God Slayer. It's a physical attack, which is range two, a strength of six, zero power cost. After this attack is resolved, this character gains power equals to the damage dealt. A basic strike. Then she has another tagline here. If this attack deals damage, after the attack is resolved, the target character gains the bleed special condition. So she has a six dice strike that's physical. Gives an auto bleed, no wild trigger. Not bad. Not bad at all. Very close range, though. That's where the long mover comes into play. It doesn't hurt quite as bad, but it's still rough. So let's move on to her next attack. It is a physical attack. It is called Cosmic Assassin. It is a range 3, strength 6, power cost 4 attack. On a wild, this attack has pierce. Change one of the defending character's critical 
wild or block results to a blank. So good. Always. I love Pierce in every form in every different tabletop game. Cosmic Assassin also has more. Rapid Strike. After this attack is resolved, this character may make an additional Cosmic Assassin attack without paying the power cost. The additional attack must target another character within range 2 of the original target character and maybe any distance from this character. This additional attack does not have the rapid strike special rule. Our first instance of cleave in this game, though it's not called cleave, it's called rapid strike. Okay, Chris, I get it. Cosmic Assassin is her god slayer with pierce and a second attack built in. That's pretty good. That's a double tap. Six dice and then six dice to someone else. This is one action. So Valkyrie, of course, has the really incredible Dragon Fang, and Valkyrie is a staple of mine, a lot of lists. But in order to trigger the second attack off Dragon Fang, that free strike, you have to get the wild. Same with Dr. Octopus. Not the case with Gamora, with Cosmic Assassin. You have to spend four power, which is very expensive, Chris, but you auto get a second six strength attack with Pierce built in. That's pretty good. Pretty, pretty, no, I'm not going to do that. Uh, <laughs> You've it's done it it's very good. <laughs> Guess what, Chris? That's it for her attack. She has a six strength strike builder, and then she has a six strength big attack that hits again for six strength on someone else within range two. That's it. So let's talk about her superpowers and see if this makes more sense. She has a reactive superpower called Assassin Leap. Costs two power. I think this is going to tie to our Black Panther analogy earlier. This character is thrown short. If the character collides with another character or terrain feature, this character does not suffer damage. This superpower may only be used once per activation. This is Black Panther's Pounce, Chris, just renamed thematically, which is really nice. So Gamora throws her body. It's size two plus one. Now an enemy character has to make a three auto hit dodge if she collided with them. And when she collides with them, she does not take the collide ping. This is a good way for her to get into the action and not spend movement actions when she could be double attacking. Absolutely. Wonderful little addition to her kit. Her next superpower is reactive power, and it's called Martial Prowess, and its power cost is 2. When this character is targeted by an attack within range 2, it may use this superpower. Instead of rolling dice equal to its defense, it rolls 5 defense dice. If this character suffers no damage from the attack, after the attack is resolved, the attacker suffers two wounds this is pretty neat so this is captain america's shield in a way where he's buffing up his defense but this one's buffing up her defense from three to five and then if she doesn't take damage she gets to counter strike them which is like a zemo natasha move so there's a nice mix of zemo natasha mixed with captain america's shield buffing up mixed with even the maw changing his defense to mystic instead of you know physical or energy it's one of those. It's very good, Chris. It's very good. It's very good in Avengers, just like her pounce is, because they both cost Yeah, I was thinking that. Exactly. I've been taking her Avengers a lot, as you know. She's in my bag for Avengers. Mm-hmm. She's great. This kind of shores up her really weak defenses, and I think it makes more sense now. So the trend we're seeing, and we're about to see with her last superpower too, is she's an incredibly fast, high damage, low defense character. 
Now, if you have power, you can make your defense better. You can make yourself safer. But she's still not going to rival other four threats with this defense, Chris. And the first thought that comes to my mind is Black Panther. He has the same movement. He has similar health, much better defense. He gets blanks on the vibranium armor as well. He's got pushes to push people away from him. So in a theory, that's kind of defensive as well. She has none of that. Gamora is a glass cannon that's melee. And that's kind of the theme of her kit, if that makes sense. Can be tough to use, but sometimes characters like Gamora are absolutely devastating. And it's because of those devastating games I I chase with them. I always end up (laughs) taking them, even though they're not exactly the right thing. But I always am chasing that perfect scenario. She's one of those, you know? She's not always going to work. Her last superpower is an innate superpower called Deadliest Woman of the Galaxy. What do you know? Very thematic. When this character makes an attack, it may change one die result to a hit for each wild in her attack roll. This is crazy, Chris. It does not sound crazy because we don't always roll wilds. Essentially, this is wild because when you do roll wilds, you just get auto hits in addition to those wilds you already rolled. She's doing the damage. Very cool. Very swingy. And adds a little bit more guarantee to her kit. It does. And let's also not forget when she does her cosmic assassin. Right. She's getting auto pierce from having a wild. So it's kind of this double-edged sword, pun intended here, where it's like she's getting a wild, she's piercing. She's also getting extra dice flipped to hits in her pool because she has a wild showing, if not more wilds than one. So she's piercing, she's getting extra hits flipped in the pool. It's good. She really is the glass cannon high damage version, which is the antithesis to Black Panther's defensive nature. That's it for her, Chris. That's it. Her backside, five stamina. Same attacks, same superpowers. I want to use her. She might not always be the best choice. I think she has a place in the game. Like I said, I just chased that high ceiling. So uh, you're probably going to see her in more of my bags (laughs) than maybe you should. But I'll be using her. I think she's one of the lesser represented characters in the game right now. And that doesn't say anything about her kit or her card. She's a niche assassin. And there's so many safer fours in the game currently. But what's cool is I don't think she gets weaker as the game goes on. I think she gets stronger because the fours get wider. And her role is just this super high damage flanker with lower defense. Is better as the game goes on if you use her right. And I think she's one of those people you put in your bag and you definitely don't pull her out every time. You know, Let's say you have an Avengers bag. Cap's getting pulled out every time, right? Black Panther's getting pulled out most of the time as a four as well. Gamora, she's that niche pick. You know, you see your enemy's team. You see some squishies over there. You see like some weak, low health twos and threes. I think you take Gamora then. She's your flanker, as Chris said earlier. She's going to come in, disrupt objectives, because her way of disrupting objectives is not taking them. It's dazing the people on them. And that's a really interesting style. She really reminds me of like a rogue absolutely or like a tool type character from starcraft they have low health but if they strike at the right moment they're going to take the crucial pieces off the board and they're going to play their role and that's her role and it's a role you know i love 
Absolutely. And in continuing with this theme of characters that are kind of like a rogue that come in, do damage, and perform their role, we're getting into Nebula. And another reason why we did Nebula this week, Chris, not only are the characters tied through lore, not only are they tied through sisterhood, and not only are they tied through just this constant back and forth rivalry they have, but even in the game, they have some ties. So Nebula, let's get into her card. Her name is Nebula. Her alter ego is Nebula. On her healthy side, she has a stamina of four, a long move as well, a height of two, a threat of two. Her defenses are three physical, three energy, two mystic. Anything stand out to you about Nebula, Chris? Well, of course, I love two threat characters. I'm obsessed with two threat characters. They're the best thing that's ever happened to me in my entire life. There you go. That's a bold statement. Uh, we <laughs> talked about Rocket last week, how much we love him, how much I love him. He's at most of my bags right now. Even Nebula is popping up a lot, too. Why do you say that about two threat characters, Chris? They fit into those odd spaces. You can almost always guarantee that you'll use them. They don't have to be the basis of your list, but they are characters you're you're going to be able to squeeze in a lot, and you can get really used to and attached to them. But also the thing I love about them is they're all very specialized so yes. far. And yes. I think that's really cool because that does give them a degree of niche power. Yes. And it perfectly fills out and fits Marvel lore and comics in the MCU even, where not everyone is an Omega level mutant, let's say, but everyone is still integral and important to the team and has a role to play. And I think that's always been a, a cool theme of, you know, team up superhero teams. Yeah. And this might be even a great discussion for a future episode on the side, Chris, because I kind of love MCP's design choices where it's kind of like, I never want the twos to not be specialized and good at one thing, because if a guy or gal who is good at several things, it was two threat, that'd be a problem. Yeah. Then we have the threes are kind of all arounders. They never have great defenses, but they, they kind of have their little specialties as well. They're also kind of all arounders. And then we have the fours, which are kind of the, the leaders and the heavy hitters of those threes archetypes. And then we have the fives and sixes, which are the heavy, heavy, heavy hitters. And what's interesting, Chris is the sixes, as of right now, as it stands, are kind of the inverse to the twos. Right. They're super specialized heavy hitters. And the fives are kind of the all-around heavy hitters. And then we have the sixes, like the Thanoses and the Hulks, who are not always good. But when they're good, they're incredibly good. So it's just kind of this great, great game design. But Nebula is no exception to this. And I think you mentioned just kind of twos being great. And I think what stands out to me about Nebula is we have our second long mover two threat after Black Widow. And that's worth something. I love the long movers. Everybody does. It's it's very obvious. I'm not breaking new ground here, but the more long movers I can get on a team, the better I feel about it. They're very helpful, especially if a terrain setup that's unique, different objectives strewn about. What's interesting about Nebula is objectives are very different for her, which we'll get to in a second, but I still love it. Last thing I want to mention, Chris, while we're on her stats, she's got a three up front on physical and a three on energy. Very good for a two threat. But then she has a two on mystic, which is incredibly thematic because of all the, not only psychological damage she's been dealt, but physical damage to her mind from Thanos. Absolutely. So let's get into her first attack, which is a physical attack, which is strike. It's range two, a strength of four, zero power cost. 
After this attack is resolved, the character gains power equal to the damage dealt, has a wild trigger, shock. After the attack is resolved, the target character gains the shock special condition. It's not a great strike. It's only four dice, but it gives shock if you get a wild, which is pretty nice. Brings it up from being the worst strike in the game. Right. There's four strikes. Do not give out conditions. So this is better, of course. But yeah, four is still the lowest number for a strike, as we know. And I'm sure, you know, Nebula's with the shock. Really nice. Shock, Chris, is a shocking condition because it really does come around more than you think. Like, taking away one dice. Right from that character's attacks they make. So if they make two attacks in a turn, you're removing two dice. That adds up after a while. It really does, if they don't get rid of it. I mean, you win either way, because getting rid of it to take it, to take half of that character's turn, all you did was roll a wild on an attack you were going to use anyway to build power. So pretty helpful. Let's move on to her second attack. It is an energy attack. It is blaster pistol, a range of three, strength of four, power cost of zero, After this attack is resolved, this character gains one power. Okay. So once again, four strength, but now energy. So you can choose your weapons wisely. This is the one you're going to use against Venom, not the strike. He's very weak to energy, as we've mentioned many times before. And this is kind of like Corvus Glaive, for instance, has the attack that builds one power. Sometimes, Chris, in this game, guaranteeing you're getting one power is better than doing a strike. With a higher ceiling, you're getting more power. That makes sense. And I'm never going to be upset with having more options. You have two different options of power building here, dependent on the situation. Right. You have two different strike types, two different ranges. It For a two-threat character, I'm not complaining about any of this. Well, in a way, I've used this blaster pistol a lot, which has been really helpful, is a turn where I have Nebula in a prime spot to attack someone range three, and I have two power. So I attack them deal some amount of damage, hopefully. You guarantee the next attack that we need to talk about. That's right. So I'm very excited to talk about this attack, which costs three power. So now my Nebula would have three power because she did a blaster pistol first to get that auto power. This is an energy attack called Shock Sword Assault. It's also range three, a strength of six, and a power cost of three. After this attack is resolved, place Nebula within range one of the target. It also has a wild trigger, stun. After this attack is resolved, the target character gains the stun special condition. So Chris, this is her big attack. It's not out of control like a lot of characters, but keep in mind, she's a two threat. What's great about this is she teleports. This is a range three attack, and then she gets to move range one. So it's, it's she essentially gets to move range four no matter what. So even if you whiff on the attack, it doesn't matter. It's not a wild trigger or anything like that. It just says, after the attack is resolved, you place Nebula within range one of the target. So this is her classic Nebula move. She's jumping in with the swords, trying to get the kill, that rogue kill. And then if she gets a wild, she gives them stun, and stun is debilitating on big characters. And you know what? It's six dice, which is pretty strong for a two-threat character. And we're about to see why it's stronger in a second. I'm glad you said that. Because that leads us right to her first superpower. It is an innate superpower, like all of her superpowers. It is called Assassin. This character cannot contest, interact with, or hold objective tokens. Additionally, this character may reroll any number of its attack dice when attacking a character that is holding or contesting an objective token. I love it so much. It's very cool. 
She is the rogue. Absolutely. You want to target characters with her because she's getting more efficacy out of it. She's getting more damage out of it. She's presumably getting more power out of it if you're striking. And though Nebula can't interact with objectives or objective tokens, she can certainly kill people and knock them out of their hands. It's very thematically similar to me as Killmonger, to be honest. Both characters are hunters. Both characters are after specific models. Uh, His case is a little more specific, but they're both seeking out specific models on the board to hit their maximum efficiency and use all of their power. And I think it's a very interesting play style, not a very widely supported as of yet play style in this game. And uh, I'm interested to see more of it. Well, and worth mentioning too, she's half the threat of right. Killmonger. Like he's kind of always going to work, but when Nebula really works, it's very exciting. And keeping with the trend we've talked about in this episode so far, Chris, I'll bring it up again. All the Guardians have the potential to do much better and hit above their weight class. Nebu is a great example. Gamora is a great example. Gamora can start doing a lot of damage similar to a Thor or Modok, even though she's only a four threat, if you play her right. If you give her winging it tokens from Star-Lord, same with Nebula. If they can get into the fray and double attack, these are absolutely deadly characters and have earned their names as the deadliest women in the galaxy and these daughters of Thanos. Because... They're a problem when they're close to your characters, and you want to stay away from them. But the problem is they're both long motors, and I love it so much. So closing out Nebula, she has two more superpowers. They're pretty basic, so we'll go through them real quick. As Chris said, they're both innate. The first one is an innate superpower called Cybernetic Enhancements. This character may reroll up to one die in its defense rolls. Additionally, at the start of this character's activation, remove one damage from it. Also, she has immunity to bleed, poison, and stun, just like every good robot would. So, Chris, she heals one at the start of her activation, and she gets one die reroll in defense, which is decent. I love this character. I really do. I don't always use her, but I just, thematically, I just think she's wonderful. And on her back, Chris, she goes from four stamina to five, so that puts her at a total of nine which is very respectable for a threat to actually very high for a two threat character. She's great. Now you've got options like is Black Widow always going to work with objectives? Yes. Is Rocket always going to be a great sniper that deals great damage from afar? Yes. Is Akoya always going to be a very, very consistent bodyguard objective holder? Yes. And lastly, is Nebula going to be an incredible assassin that cannot interact with the objectives at all, but she can get in there and kill enemies with objectives? Yes. So this kind of goes back to your topic you brought at the front of this. What specialist two threat do you want? Exactly. Because they all have incredible strengths and incredible weaknesses. Which is just such an inherently captivating design. We love that design in our superheroes. We love that design in our action heroes, in our movies, in our books. It's always more compelling when there's kind of that Achilles heel. Absolutely, Chris. And to close out our Gamora Nebula strategy section, I have a tactics card called Daughters of Thanos. It's an unaffiliated card, so you can take it anytime you have Gamora and Nebula in a team, which is nice. It's reactive. When either an allied Gamora or an allied Nebula makes an attack action, after the attack is resolved, both Gamora and Nebula may spend two power each to play this card. The character, Gamora or Nebula, then did not make the attack, 
may immediately make a attack targeting the same target character. How cool is that? Very cool. Hard to pull off. Not power-wise, just more like getting them lined up. But you can you can melt someone, man. Yeah, because if anything, like this is a really crazy card to use. Like, say Gamora goes early in a round, she double attacks, or she even moves and attacks, and then she's done. Then the enemy goes with their next character. Then you go with Nebula. Mm-hmm. You move up. You attack a target within you know this range of Gamora, and Gamora gets a second or potential third attack outside of activation when she's already gone for the round. And we've seen how potent Gamora's attacks are. That's the ideal situation for this, is getting the free attack out of Gamora. But you know what? I mean, Chris, I would pay two for this pistol attack from Nebula. Just attack on to attack Gamora's already doing. Just finish someone off. Or even the two power plus three power. Nebula has it. Mm-hmm. You just finish them off for real with the sword shock attack. It's a neat card. It's more niche. You only want to take it in your eight cards when you know you're going to be running Gamora Nebula at least in half your lists, I think. So that's where it gets complicated. But it is neat it's in the deck. It is neat it's called Daughters of Thanos because it makes perfect sense. If anything, I love this in the game because, as we know, tactic cards are a very wide berth sort of element of this game that we figure out more and more a day and... They're also the part that I think no one's experimented the most with because there are a lot of generic tactic cards that always work. Right. But some of these kind of more niche ones do have a little bit more explosive ceiling if you get them off. And, you know, maybe you don't include them in your super competitive tournament lists, but casually a tactics card like this is absolutely a blast to try to pull off. Maybe it's your goal for the whole game is to try to pull off a big tactic card of this nature you know that's kind of hard to pull off and and that's really fun to do and i will say chris it's it's not quite as good as like what we talked about last week dynamic duo with rocket and group rocket right gets to perform three attacks but once again contingent on taking rocket and grid in the list gotta take mora and nebula list so planning planning 100 percent a very fun card but yeah, Chris, that's it for Gamora Nebula and Strategy. Any final thoughts about these characters? Because we have a four threat, we have a two threat, they have similar defense. Similar health, not really that far off. I mean, Gamora has ten health, Nebula has nine, Nebula has the heal too. I think Nebula is the standout here. But the thing about Gamora is like Gamora is a niche player on a team. And when you choose her in the right spot, she is absolutely deadly. At this point in MCP. Not every character is going to be a standout, all-encompassing hero like a Thor. Right. That's actually very good. I want to see more of that in these fours, in the fives, in the sixes, because I think Gamora's most interesting element, and maybe why people are picking her less, is that she's four threat. If she would be three threat, she would be broken. Absolutely broken. It's just kind of this interesting design space where there's certain characters you just can't make quite where they fit everywhere as well and that's okay i actually think it's a wonderful part of the game because it leads to alternate play styles it leads to like i was talking about with that that killmonger and nebula kind of hunter type of play style it doesn't always fit but the more characters we get like that the more kind of support there's going to be for that you're going to start seeing different play style type teams coming out and i think that's a really exciting part of the game you know, you can run thematic lists, just fun lists. I mean, Chris, you could get wild. You could run Hella Killmonger 
mm-hmm. Gamora, Zemo, Nebula. Just have a sword team. It just murders people. You know, close range, re-rolls, delete people off the board. Why not? Try it out. It could be really fun. I love that idea. And it sounds like a list that is 100% my play style. That's a Chris. That's what I was going to say. A high damage, all-in aggro mm-hmm. melee team. I would lose with it a lot, but I would love trying to play it. Yeah, you would also love when you focus fire and delete people. Because that's, that's the intention of the team. I know. I will say before we close out these two characters is like Nebula is a staple of mine right now. Absolutely. The problem is just like Rocket, Rocket can hold an objective and shoot. Nebula cannot hold an objective. So if you're not proactive with her, she actually is a lot of dead weight on your team compared to some of the other twos. Because, you know, worst case scenario, Chris, in this game, another two can sit on an objective. With Nebula, the ceiling is a little tougher, but it's so worth it. Rerolls are out of control. You know, when you doing the reroll. And, you know, I think she's really interesting paired with some team's leadership. She fits pretty nicely into Cabal. She fits pretty nicely into Web Warriors, where she gets extra yes. defensive rerolls. She might fit into Spider Foes, which is something I looked at recently. You know, you make them reroll defensive dice to guarantee her kills. She might fit really well in Wakanda because they're a low cost, wide team that wins objectives. Why not have someone that doesn't care about attention exactly. flanking around the side? What I'm getting at is she fits kind of everywhere because she's a two threat. But the real question is, is how do you use her correctly? Because if you're not using her correctly, she actually is a big dead weight compared to almost every other two threat in the game because she cannot interact with or contest objectives. I couldn't say it any better than how you just stated it. I love the character. I love her design. But you are paying a penalty for that little extra oomph that she's got with her powers and her attacks, which is absolutely necessary. And I think a really interesting design choice on, on the part of Atomic Mass. But once again, that Achilles heel just, just brings my interest in the potential damage output just really piques oh, my yeah. interest. She is my play style and she is an awesome assassin. Well, speaking of like damage output, like I think she really fits really well on Black Order and recently she's been in all oh, of I love that. bags alongside Rocket. They're an expensive faction and they want to kill people. So it's kind of like obvious that we want to take high damage two threat characters like Gamora and Rocket because frankly, Black Order doesn't have the room for most characters in their list. Nebula and Rocket have a beautiful spot in their teams. And what do you know, Chris? We get to bring this thematically home with Thanos giving right. extra dice if he's using Death's Decree with her. And then, you know, if she gets a kill, an actual KO on someone, she gains a victory point for the team, which is, of course, the dream scenario that doesn't happen very often. But if it does, you know, she's lived that Black Order fantasy. And then, of course, got cards like the Price of Failure, where I think Nebula is a great contender. Where can KO a Nebula on your team who's pretty teed up with this Price of Failure card and then give your entire Black Order team three power each and just feed them from Nebula's death, which is very thematic. And what Thanos would do. Extremely thematic. I honestly take her in my Black Order list alone just so I can make that happen. Because I just think it's the Black Order way. It's a perfect use of a two-threat character. Get what what damage you can out of them and then turn them into power before before your opponent can take them off the board. It's wonderful. So we will get back to you guys with more Gamora and Nebula games. But I'm very excited to play more of these characters in the future chris absolutely i can't wait for our next game 
Fury's Finest is supported by our wonderful patrons. You can become a Fury's Finest patron by going to patreon.com slash Fury's Finest. Catch our streams of Marvel Crisis Protocol at twitch.tv slash Fury's Finest. A couple of you guys jumped on the other day when I actually did stream some TTS. I was testing the stream. I was also doing some theory crafting and some list building in TTS, which is really fun. We're hoping to do more of that in the future. Chris also has some stuff in the works for the stream on his end. So just stay tuned. If you don't follow us on Twitch, please do. It helps us out on Twitch. And most importantly, it informs you when we go live. Because the other night when I went live, it was just completely unintentional. I had a break from the baby and I had a moment between production of the show and editing. And I was like, man, what a great time to test the stream because we haven't done it so long. Tested it on a computer this time and try to stream TTS because Chris and I's goal is to, of course, stream TTS in the future, stream some painting, and then eventually when COVID-19 calms down, stream some in-person battle reports again. So make sure you're following us on twitch.tv slash finest. Once again, follow the show on social media. It really helps us out. Twitter at Fury's Finest Cast, Instagram and Facebook at Fury's Finest. And anytime you guys want to email us with any inquiries or just, you know, Marvel facts or fun, email us at furiesfinest at gmail.com. I will plug while we're here. Chris and I have a terrain episode in the works. We're looking at all the different maps for MCP. We're looking at the terrain that Atomic Mass has put out, terrain that other companies have put out, and even third-party terrain that's not related to MCP. If you're a company that makes mats or terrain or even like tokens or anything like that, please reach out to us at furiesfinestgmail.com. And let's get talking because we want to make this a kind of a comprehensive terrain episode. So this is something that's going to take a long time for us. But if you reach out sooner than later, you're definitely going to make the episode. And we have a couple of you that have reached out to us already, sent us some mats, some terrain that we're reviewing, hobbying, working on, so we can give our honest look at it. We would love to do more. There's so many companies out there that make great stuff with this game, Chris, and we would just love to look at it and promote it on the show. Anything to help support this wonderful Marvel Crisis Protocol community that is happening. Thanks to Approaching Nirvana for our intro and outro music, and please help spread the word about our show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. Guys, we just hit 100 reviews on Apple Podcasts. That really helps us out a lot. Cannot thank you enough. Once again, if you have an Apple device or your partner has an Apple device or your friend has an Apple device, it'd be really helpful to us if you can just get onto the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star review. If you can write, even better. Some of you have wrote some incredibly kind and humbling things that we really take to heart. It really does make our day. And most importantly, it helps this show become more accessible to new players and grow this community of MCP. You can find us on the internet and find me, Jesse, on Twitter and Instagram at Jesse Aiken. That's J-E-S-S-E-E-A-K-I-N. I have two Star Wars shows, The Canon Cantina, which is a Star Wars lore, history, news, and much more show. I also have another Star Wars show called Project Starhawk about the upcoming Star Wars EA Star Wars Flight Sim game, Star Wars Squadrons. Please check out Project Starhawk. Give it a subscribe. Listen. Those of you that have done it already, thank you. Uh, we have great following there. We want to grow that community, that game as well, because, you know, the game's not out yet. And what a great time for us all to listen, talk about it weekly on a podcast, listen, get ready to play Squadrons. Oh, I'll be playing that game. You better believe it. You can follow me, Chris, on Twitter at C-H-R-I-S 
B-R-U-F-F-E-T-T, where I'll tweet sometimes. That's it for today. Look forward to next week as we get back into the Guardians once again. Thanks for listening. True Believers. Excelsior. The world has gotten even stranger than you already know. At this point, I doubt anything would surprise me. Ten bucks says you're wrong. Tell me something. In the future, what happens to you and me? I try to kill you. Several times. But eventually, we become friends. We become sisters. stop him.